Hey, Rachel. Hey, Ashley. Hey, listeners of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. On our podcast, The Good Book, we're reading the Bible for the first time, cover to cover, and talking about its history and our many theological questions along the way. Join us for a craft beer or three, a sprinkling of outdated pop culture references, and some light theology from an academic perspective. You can find us on goodbookpod.com, on Twitter at goodbookpodcast, and wherever you find podcasts. Wait, don't immediately click away to listen to our podcast, though. Stay tuned for this episode of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Take it away, Ryan. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 93, Revolt in the Empire. The death of Pericles marked the end of an exceptional period of leadership in Athenian history and brought about a great change in Athenian politics, as it created a vacuum for new political leadership in the city. And as we so often see in history, when someone steps up to fill a power vacuum, Oftentimes, the strategies and the characteristics of these new leaders is markedly different than those of the previous regime. In particular, Thucydides says that Pericles' allies and his faction were essentially equal with one another, and so nobody was able to step up and provide the unified, consistent leadership that he had brought to the war effort. As a result, spearheaded by those who had become impatient with Pericles' limited aims and tactics, the Athenians were allured away from his conservative, defensive strategy to a more aggressive one, put forth by those who eventually filled the power vacuum. They aimed to strengthen Athens' offensive capability in order to bring the war to Sparta and its allies, and thereby win the war decisively. At first, they stuck to Pericles' plan of avoiding infantry battles. But in time, they would venture forth and meet the Peloponnesians on land, with mixed results. No one person in particular was able to replace Pericles as the de facto leader of the Athenian people, but a handful stepped forward. This political vacuum would bring about a major change in the character of the Athenian government. Although no formal distinctions divided the aristocratic from the newly wealthy, until the war, the Athenians had felt most comfortable with political power in the hands of men from older, wealthier families, men like Cimon and Pericles. But now, although these traditional families still had the advantage in elections for the generalships, rising to particular importance in Athenian democracy in the 420s BC were a new set of politicians. These men didn't hail from traditional landed aristocratic families, but families of ordinary working Athenians with no connections to the nobility, but who had acquired immense fortunes through trade and industry during the prosperous years of Athens' maritime empire. In particular, two of these new men without noble lineage emerged as leaders of rival factions and would come to dictate policy in the next stage of the war, and the temperaments of both couldn't have been any different. Their names were Nicias and Cleon. We know quite a bit about Nicias, not only from Thucydides, but because Plutarch also wrote a life of Nicias. He had inherited a considerable fortune from his father, Nicaratos, which he made even larger by investing it into slaves, and then renting them out to work in the silver mines of Attica's Mount Laurion, as we discussed in episode 68. It was said that at any given time, he employed over 1,000 slaves working in the mines. Despite his immense wealth, he was a pious and reserved man who lacked the eloquence or charm needed in the political arena. However, he was able to gain popularity because he was exceedingly generous with his immense wealth, as he so often spent his money on charitable activities in Athens, including the funding of choruses for Athenian dramas in the role of a choregos, as well as sporting events, new or restored statues and temples, and many religious festivals. It also didn't hurt his public image that his name literally meant a man of victory. As a general, he held command alongside Pericles and Formio for many years, but with their deaths, he would be thrusted into more of a position of leadership. In terms of politics, although he was more of a moderate, he opposed aggressive imperialism, and his principal war aim was to conclude a peace with Sparta, 
but only on terms that were favorable to Athens. Even if that meant that Athens would have to take the offensive to obtain this position of advantage. And so, he essentially became the de facto leader of the landed elite. On the other hand, there was Cleon, who was the first prominent representative of the commercial class in Athenian politics. His father, Cleonetos, had earned his family's fortune as a successful manufacturer of leather, a term known as tanning, or the process of treating skins and hides of animals to produce leather, and a tannery is the place where the skins are processed. Anyways, as we have alluded to before, Thucydides and the comedic playwright Aristophanes both represented him as a vulgar, warmongering demagogue. We will discuss Aristophanes' portrayal of him in future episodes, but there is some truth in these caricatures, as Cleon had deliberately cultivated an anti-aristocratic persona. Previously, he had only been a vigorous opposition critic to the policies of Pericles, but he now stepped forward as the professed champion of the demos, and as such, rapidly came to dominate Athenian politics. He was the first of several leading politicians at Athens who commanded respect in the ecclesia without ever having held the generalship. Although rough and unpolished, he was charismatic, with natural eloquence and a powerful voice, and he knew how to work upon the emotions of the Athenian people. He would move about the speaker's platform in the ecclesia as if it were the stage of a theater, stamping and gesturing to drive his point home. He would become the most powerful politician in Athens, though he would never attain Pericles' stature or exercise comparable authority. While Cleon and Nicias were polar opposites in personality, character, and temperament, in their attitude towards the war effort, they were in one accord in the years following Pericles' death. Neither favored peace negotiations with Sparta, and both wished to implement an offensive strategy necessary to win the war, though Nicias was a lot more measured and cautious than the overly aggressive Cleon. Still, although they were to become principal rivals, there is no reason to believe that they didn't cooperate early on especially in late 429 and early 428 BC, when the Athenians now more than ever needed a united front to figure out how they were going to proceed next. At the city Dionysia in early spring 428 BC, Euripides performed the Andromache, his next deceptively anti-Spartan play, which dramatizes the life of the former Trojan princess turned slave, many years after the events of the Trojan War. Although this play is no doubt a tragedy, it doubles as a scorching satire of the cunning and arrogant ways of the Spartans. The odious character portrayal, which Euripides attributes to Menelaus, can be seen as a reflection of the feelings towards Sparta that prevailed at Athens at that time. He is portrayed as an arrogant and wicked tyrant, and his daughter Hermione is portrayed as being equally arrogant, while still being excessively jealous over her husband's faithfulness to the point that she would plot to murder an innocent child and his mother in order to clear her household of rival women and rival sons for the throne. Even Peleus curses Sparta's wickedness several times during the play. Near the middle of 428 BC, as the grain was getting ripe, the Peloponnesians resumed their invasions of Attica. Under the command of Archidamus once again, they ravaged the land for about a month before withdrawing. This was the third time in four years that they had done so, and all three times were relatively similar. Sparta didn't stay too long, because every day that the soldiers were away from home was another day that the Helots might rebel, and so they really only could engage in a few skirmishes here or there in Attica for about a month before the worrisome Spartans became nervous and went home. Similarly, the Athenian cavalry was sent out to attack them whenever it was practicable, and in order to prevent the Peloponnesian light troops from ravaging the land near the city of Athens itself most likely because they wanted to avoid the Athenians from physically being able to see the Spartans destroying their crops and homes, rather than just hearing reports about it. During the early summer of 428 BC, the Athenians also prepared to send a fleet out once again to campaign against the Peloponnesian coast. Unlike the first two years of the war, this fleet was only going to be made up of 40 triremes in order to save funds. It was to be led by a man named Cleipides, who is otherwise unknown, and two other unnamed generals. But this would not come to pass, at least not right now, as certain events kicked off that would turn into one of many atrocities that occurred during the war. In June, a plot was hatched on the large island of Lesbos that had the potential to threaten the very survival of the Athenian Empire, as four of the five lesbian cities revolted. One of Lesbos's chief cities was Mytilene, which was unusual amongst Athens' allies in that it was governed by oligarchs. Mithymna was also on equal power with Mytilene, but it was democratic. The other three cities, 
Antissa, Pyrrha, and Erosos, were smaller and less powerful. The island of Lesbos was also exceptional in that it was one of the two remaining independent allies who still provided ships instead of tribute as their contribution to the League, alongside Chios. Samos was the third, but they had that status stripped away just over a decade earlier, as we discussed in episode 89. This is significant though, because like with Samos, during any sort of rebellion, Lesbos would have been able to field its own fleet. Despite their favored status, the Mytilenians had their own aspirations of dominating the island, which would have required a revolt from the empire, as Athens generally discouraged the creation of new multi-city subunits, and would certainly not have permitted Lesbos to be unified and dominated by one city, especially an oligarchically controlled one. If you remember once again from episode 89, the Mytilenian government had contemplated revolting at the time of the Samian War, but ultimately did not, as the Spartans wouldn't guarantee their acceptance into the Peloponnesian Alliance, which would have been a violation of the peace treaty. And without the necessary Spartan support, a successful revolt would have been virtually impossible. But this time, with the peace already having been broken, and Athens weakened by the plague and a manpower shortage, the Mytilenian leaders judged that the time now was ripe for a revolt. No doubt they worked in concert with Spartan and Boeotian Proxenoi at Mytilene, who would have urged them that they would have had the backing of Sparta and Boeotia in this type of endeavor. Although he served as a citizen and resident of his own state, a Proxenos also served as a friend or representative of a foreign state, much like a modern honorary consul. And so, in this particular instance, the Spartan and Boeotian Proxenoi at Mytilene were Mytilenean citizens who advocated for the interests of Sparta and Boeotia respectively. This was a very common diplomatic device in ancient Greece. Anyways, once they decided to take action, the Mytilenian government began to forcibly unite the three smaller cities on the island under their sovereignty and to prepare for a revolt by fortifying their city with defensive walls, blocking up their harbor, increasing the size of their navy, and gathering supplies for a prolonged war by sending to the Black Sea region for grain shipments and mercenaries. Before they completed their preparations though, word of their actions had reached Athens probably from their enemies in the region, namely the Methemians, those from the nearby island of Tenedos, and Mytilenian Democrats, who were hostile to the oligarchic government and thus were pro-Athens. And so the disclosure of their plans brought an Athenian response before the Mytilenians were ready. The Athenians, though, were still suffering from the plague and were under great financial strain from the unexpectedly long and involved war, which had included a highly expensive siege of Potidaea and so they initially tried to negotiate in order to avoid taking on yet another military commitment. But when the Mytilenians refused to abandon their plans to unify Lesbos, or their preparations for war, the Athenians resigned themselves to the necessity of a military response. And so the Athenian fleet that was prepped to raid the Peloponnese was given orders to sail for Lesbos instead. In addition, the ten Mytilenian triremes that had been serving in the fleet were detained at Athens, and their crews were placed in custody, Probably because it wasn't known if their allegiance could be trusted, and even if it could, the Athenians weren't in the business of making others fight and kill their own kinsfolk. The Athenians were imperialistic, but they weren't unnecessarily cruel. Well, at least in this regard. Anyways, the initial plan was for the fleet to arrive during a religious festival in honor of Malian Apollo, during which all of the Mytilenians would be outside of the city at Cape Malia, and so it would be easy for the Athenians to seize the fortifications of the town. But the Athenians' hope to surprise the Mytilenians did not come to pass, as secrecy was virtually impossible in their democracy, thanks to decisions being made in the open in the Ecclesia. And so a messenger was able to warn the Mytilenians in advance. As a result, on the day of the festival, the Mytilenians remained in their city, with double the amount of guards and barricades on the weaker sections of their walls, which were those that had yet to be finished. And so when the Athenian fleet arrived not long afterwards, they unexpectedly found the city to be well defended. When they ordered the Mytilenians to surrender their ships and to tear down their walls, the Mytilenians refused this demand and even went so far as to send their fleet to fight the Athenians just outside the harbor. The Athenians quickly defeated this fleet though and drove it back into the harbor. Although the Mytilenians were caught before their supplies had arrived, before their defenses were mounted, and before any alliance with the Peloponnesians and Boeotians was formally concluded, the Athenians also were in a relatively weak position, as they only had 40 ships, which was not sufficient enough to fight all of Lesbos. And so the Athenians thought it prudent to accept the Mytilenians' offer for an armistice, after which they sent a diplomatic mission to Athens, 
with the intent to persuade the Athenians that they would remain loyal to the alliance if the Athenians withdrew their fleet. Essentially, this meant that the Athenians would accept their domination of Lesbos in return for future loyalty. The attempt to reach a settlement at Athens fell through, though, as the Athenians were unwilling to withdraw their fleet from Lesbos, an act which implicitly meant that they would abandon Methymna, the lone lesbian holdout, and thus deny it the protection that being a member of their empire afforded them. Abandoning an ally like this would have undermined their claims to legitimacy as rulers of their empire. Knowing full well that the Athenians would refuse their offer, the Mytilenians' true intention then was likely not at reaching an agreement with Athens, but rather at buying time for their negotiations with Sparta and Boeotia to bear fruit. Because at the same time their envoys were in Athens, they had also secretly sent an embassy to Sparta in order to request aid from their alliance, which snuck through unobserved by the Athenian fleet that was anchored at Malia to the north of the city. The Spartans, though, knew that any help to Mytilene would have required a large and expensive fleet and fighting at sea. The memory of their two humiliating defeats to Formio the previous year probably made this a particularly unappealing prospect, one that they weren't quite yet to commit to, and so they declined involvement. At about the same time in the summer, the Athenians also sent 30 ships to the Peloponnese under Asapius, the son of the recently deceased Formio. Because as we mentioned last episode, the Acarnanians insisted that any future commander in their lands should be some relative of the daring Athenian general who had defended them so vigorously and effectively. As the ships coasted along the Peloponnesian shore, they ravaged the seaboard of Laconia. Afterwards, Asapius sent most of the fleet home, except for 12 triremes, which he took to Naupactus. Later, he would lead a land and sea assault on Oneidae. As the Athenian fleet sailed along the Achalus River and the Arcananian army laid waste to the countryside. When he met resistance from the locals, Asapius dismissed the land army and decided to instead sail the fleet of 12 ships against the island of Lucas. But during this assault, he too found stiff resistance, and during his retreat, many of his troops were cut off and killed. Meanwhile, when the Mytilenian ambassadors returned to Lesbos bearing the news that Athens declined their offer, all of the lesbian cities, except for Methymna, openly declared war on Athens, and hostilities at once resumed. The Mytilenians then mustered an army and marched out to attack the Athenian camp. Although they came out slightly better in the ensuing battle, the Mytilenians were unwilling to press their advantage and retreated back behind their fortifications before nightfall. At this point, the Athenians, encouraged by the lack of initiative on their enemy's part, summoned for additional troops and their allies, and those from Methymna and the nearby islands of Imbros and Lemnos came to fight alongside the Athenians. Once these reinforcements arrived, the Athenians sailed their ships to a new station just to the south of the city, built two fortified camps, one on either side of Mytilene's harbor, and instituted a naval blockade of the city by blocking both sides of the harbor with their fleet. However, the Mytilenians and their lesbian allies still had control of the land outside of the Athenian fortifications around their camps. The Athenians also held the area around Malia, which they used as a station for their ships and as their military market, which is where Greek soldiers and sailors were expected to purchase their food with their own money. Immediately after the Mytilenian attack on the Athenian camp, a trireme bearing ambassadors from Sparta and Thebes slipped past the Athenians into Mytilene and advised the Mytilenians to send a second group of envoys to plead once again for Spartan intervention, as they believed that continual appeals could sway the Spartans. This second group of Mytilenian envoys arrived within a week of the first, in mid-July. Although they also weren't successful in securing immediate assistance, they weren't outright denied either. The Spartans instead directed them to Olympia so that the other allies there could hear their appeal, as they were all gathered for the Olympic festival. And so in August, the Peloponnesian alliance met in the sacred precinct of Zeus at Olympia after the conclusion of the games. In the speech, given before the assembled Peloponnesians, the Mytilenian ambassador provided their justifications for their revolt. First, he argues that their revolt should not be seen as dishonorable, since their independence is a precarious sham. And so an attempt to break such a relationship with Athens should not be condemned. He asserts that Athens had taken advantage of the Delian League and used it as a mechanism for enslaving and exploiting other Greeks. That it was only a matter of time before they set their sights on Mytilene's prosperous and autonomous island of Lesbos and forced it into their system of oppression, and that the Mytilenians could not wait for this and should preemptively break away before Athens forced her will upon them. 
The ambassador, though, naturally left out the major motivation of the oligarchs in the rebellion, which is the fact that they sought for the unification of the five city-states of Lesbos under their leadership. He then argues that the war would not be decided in Attica, but in the empire from where Athens' money came. And because of this, now was the time to strike, as Athens was widely known to have been weakened from the plague and short on men and money. Plus, if they revolted, they probably envisioned that others would follow suit, making it an easier prospect to achieve. The Mytilenean ambassador concludes by saying, quote, If you come to our aid with vigor, you will enroll among your allies a state that has a great navy, which you need most of all, and you will defeat the Athenians more easily by drawing their allies away from them. For everyone will proceed more boldly after you have assisted us and you will escape the charge which you now have of not helping those who rebel from Athens. If, however, you show yourselves openly to be liberators, you will surely have victory. End quote. Essentially, the Mytilenians asked Sparta to receive them as allies, to exploit Athenian weaknesses, and to show themselves as true liberators of the Hellenes. After hearing this speech, the Spartans and their allies voted to accept the lesbians into their alliance and to attack Athens immediately in support of the revolt. Specifically, the Spartans agreed both to organize a second invasion of Attica for that year and to send a relief naval force to Lesbos. And so the Spartans ordered the allies to gather at the Isthmus of Corinth as quickly as possible, with two-thirds of their forces once again. While they, since they were the first to arrive, would prepare the hauling machines to drag their ships across the Isthmus to the Saronic Gulf for a joint attack on Athens by land and sea. As an aside, at the Isthmus of Corinth, we have remains of this ancient trackway, called the Dialkos, which was specifically made for carts to haul ships across in order to avoid the long and sometimes difficult voyage around the Peloponnese. We discussed this creation in episode 16. Anyways, the zeal that the Spartans displayed in this endeavor was not imitated by the rest of their allies, as the others had sent their contingents to the Isthmus very slowly, because they were reluctant to forego harvesting their crops for that season, upon which their well-being depended, in order to burn someone else's crops. Thucydides also says that they were just sick of making these type of expeditions that resulted in no pitched battles of any kind. So it seems that the war, which was now in its fourth year, was clearly affecting the morale of some, if not most, of Sparta's allies, as Pericles had predicted that it would. At the same time, the Athenians, who still had their 40 ships blockading Lesbos, sent another 100 triremes into the waters of the Saronic Gulf, with their prows pointing towards the Isthmus of Corinth, as a show of force to make it known that they had not been critically weakened. This bold display of confidence and capability, though, strained Athenian resources even further, as the state's finances were already stretched thin. And so, besides the usual rowers from the Thetes, or the lowest class, this time they were also forced to draw upon men of the Zugatai class, who normally fought as hoplites only. Medics were also pressed into service as rowers to meet the emergency. Naturally, these crews were not as good as those before them, of only battle-hardened feats, but the Spartans were still cowed by their defeats of the previous year to offer battle, so it ultimately wouldn't matter. At the same time, they also received reports that Asapius and the 30 aforementioned ships had been sailing around the Peloponnese, ravaging the coastline, and were now close to Sparta. The Spartans had been promised that the 40 ships of Mytilene were all that the Athenians could muster, and so this demonstration of power, both on their coastline and in the Saronic Gulf, had convinced the Spartans that the Mytilenian ambassadors had misrepresented Athens' current weakness. And so, they abandoned their plans to launch a naval attack that summer and returned home. When the hundred Athenian triremes saw the Spartans sail home, they too returned to Piraeus. And so the sea and land invasion of Attica did not materialize and the Mytilenians were left to confront the Athenians alone. At about the same time that the Spartans were at the Isthmus making their preparations, the Mytilenians and their allies launched a land attack on Methymna, expecting that the city would be betrayed to them from within. However, when the promised betrayal failed to materialize, the attack was repulsed. And so the Mytilenians returned home, stopping along the way to help strengthen the fortifications of their other three lesbian allies. Once the Mytilenians had returned home, though, the Methemnians marched out against one of these cities, Antissa, but they were defeated by the Antissans and their mercenary allies in the fighting that took place outside the city's walls. 
and so the Methymnians retreated in haste back to their city. When word of this reached Athens, they quickly realized that their force at Lesbos was insufficient to hold in check the Mytilenians on land. Hand in hand with this was Sparta's apparent withdrawal from their planned land and sea attack on Attica. And so the Athenians were encouraged, and more importantly, had the bandwidth now to press harder against Mytilene. And so that autumn in 428 BC, the Athenians dispatched Pacchus with a thousand hoplites, who as Thucydides puts it, worked their own passage, meaning they served as rowers in the triremes that carried them to Lesbos. Once they arrived, they were quickly able to gain control of the land around Mytilene, and then they built a wall of circumvallation around the city, with forts at some of the strongest points, thus completing the land and sea blockade of the Mytilenians by the onset of winter 428-427 BC. It was meant not only to protect Methymna, but to force Mytilene to surrender. The revolts of Mytilene, though, strained Athenian financial resources beyond any predictions that Pericles could have made at the start of the war. By the winter of 428-427 BC, the available reserves had fallen to less than a thousand talents, and a financial crisis had set in at Athens. Therefore, in order to pay for the current financial state of affairs, the Athenians took two extraordinary measures. First, they increased the tribute assessments from their subject allies. In doing so, several months before the usual deadline for collection, which normally happened in June at the Panathenaic Festival, the Athenians dispatched 12 triremes to collect the newly assessed taxes from the Allies. We don't have any specifics on how much was collected or how the Allies responded. However, they did meet armed resistance in at least one place, as one of the generals commanding these ships and some of his troops were killed while attempting to gather collections in Caria. That general was Lysicles. He was a member of Cleon's faction of Warhawks. According to Ascanius Socraticus, a philosopher who flourished in the early 4th century BC, Lysicles was a rich sheep dealer who lived with Aspasia after Pericles' death, and even had a son with her. Anyways, just raising taxes on their allies would not have been enough to meet Athens' financial obligations, so the Athenians also introduced, for the first time, an Isphora, or a property tax. As strange as it may seem to modern taxpayers, citizens of Greek polis were extremely reluctant to use measures such as this as they believed that the idea of direct taxation was a violation of their personal autonomy. In fact, this may have been the first time that such a tax was ever imposed at Athens, or the first time that it was imposed during the war, as Thucydides isn't clear. This tax differed in object and nature from the property tax that Pisistratus had imposed the century before. First, it was not imposed permanently, but only to meet a temporary crisis. Second, it was to be used for purely military purposes. And third, it was imposed on all property, and not just on land ownership. In its first year, the tax yielded 200 talents, and it would be frequently reimposed throughout the war. Although it isn't stated, those behind this might have been Nicias and Pacchus, who were generals that acted not out of partisan politics or class warfare, but from prudent patriotism responding to what must have seemed like a national emergency in the face of a land and sea attack on Athens and a major rebellion in the empire. Other scholars, though, believe that it was introduced by Cleon because the policy of taxation was often associated with the demagogues. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language with confidence. As a classicist, I focused more on reading ancient languages, like Greek and Latin, and I have always regretted that I never focused on learning to speak other languages, but now I am rectifying that with Babbel. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Dutch, Danish, English, French, German, Indonesian, Italian, Norwegian, Polish, Brazilian Portuguese, Russian, Swedish, Spanish, and Turkish. Babbel is designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. Lessons are created by over 100 language experts, real people, not by a translation machine. You learn through interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology, so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. You can try Babbel for free by downloading the Babbel app or go to babbel.com. That's babbel.com. B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. 
That same winter, the Plataeans, who were still being besieged by the Peloponnesians and Boeotians, started to become very distressed about their dwindling provisions. And since no relief from Athens was in sight, they began to plot a scheme to escape from their city, if necessary, by forcing their way over the enemy's counterwall. At first, everyone inside was willing to join, including both Plataeans and the Athenians who were besieged with them. But eventually, about half of them had second thoughts, and so only 220 would proceed with the plan. Ladders were made to match the height of the enemy's counterwall, which they measured by counting its layer of bricks. Thucydides then says that on the Peloponnesian counterwall, there were battlements, and at every ten battlements, there were much larger towers. On stormy and wet nights, the battlements were deserted, and guard was kept only from the towers, since they were roofed. And so, with this knowledge in hand, the Plataeans waited for a stormy night of wind and rain, and with cloud cover so that the moon couldn't shine a light on their undertaking. When this night came, they climbed atop their city's walls, and passed through the ditch, through the counterwall, which was occupied by huts for the soldiers on guard duty. But these sentinels did not notice them in the darkness, nor could they hear them as the wind drowned out the noise of their approach. They also kept a distance between each other, and were lightly equipped so as to not attract noise. Those who carried the ladders went first, and planted them at one of the battlements, which they knew to be unguarded. After a good number had mounted the counterwall, though, one of the Plataeans knocked down one of the wall's tiles, and caused enough noise that it was heard by one of the sentinels in a tower. Since it was dark and he could not tell the nature of the danger, an alarm was instantly given and the troops all rushed to the wall. Those Plataeans who had remained in the city immediately chose that moment to make sorties against the wall of the Peloponnesians that was on the opposite side of where the breakout was happening, in order to divert the attention of the besiegers. At this point, fire signals were raised towards Thebes so that those 300 who were set aside for service on emergencies would come to the besiegers' aid. But the Plataeans somehow, it's not mentioned in what way, had prepared for this to happen and had rendered the enemy's signals intelligible which would ultimately delay the response of the Thebans. Meanwhile, the front of the scaling party had gotten up onto the battlements, and in the dark they swiftly killed the sentinels and then posted themselves inside the towers to prevent anyone from coming through against the rest of those escaping by shooting them with arrows and throwing projectiles. Just as the last person had scaled the wall, the 300 Thebans had finally arrived carrying torches, but due to the darkness and violence of the storm, many were picked off by arrows. Of the 220 who started the mission, only 8 of them lost nerve during the breakout and fled back to Plataea. The other 212 safely made it over the wall and began to flee towards Athens. The Peloponnesians pursued them briefly, but ultimately they returned to their posts. The Spartans during this winter also introduced a war fund to raise money for their upcoming campaigns, as they were planning to attempt another land and sea campaign against Attica and to send a fleet of ships to relieve the siege of Mytilene. As a result, towards the close of winter, they sent a Spartan commander named Seleuthus on a single trireme to Mytilene. He was able to be smuggled unseen into the city. He then informed the Mytilenian magistrates that the promised Spartan support of the previous year would in fact be coming the following campaign season in 427 BC. This welcome news encouraged the Mytilenians to hold out against Athens, as some apparently had thoughts that Spartan aid wasn't coming and so they thought about negotiation with the Athenians. Seleuthus himself was ordered to stay in the city to coordinate defensive actions on the island. This ended Thucydides' account of the fourth year of the war. While the winter drew to a close, the Athenians had faced the greatest challenge that they had yet confronted during the war. They had to put down a rebellion by a powerful member of their alliance, while their own territory was in danger of being invaded by land and sea and they had to squash both of these very quickly, as a long siege like the one at Potidaea might finally exhaust their reserves, which would put an end to their empire regardless if they were able to put down Mytilene and defend Athens. And so the year 427 BC would be the first time that the Spartans would implement a strategy that they had long considered, which was to attack Athens while a major ally was in revolt. They had contemplated it twice in the previous four decades, at the time of the revolts of Thassos and Samos, but their own Helot revolt and their allies' unwillingness to do so prevented both of them from happening. However, none of these hurdles were in place at this point, and so the Spartan invasion of Attica in the spring of 427 BC would be the second largest of the war, only slightly smaller than the one done in the first year, as it was meant to put pressure 
both financially and psychologically, on the Athenians to prevent them from sending a larger fleet to Mytilene. For the first time during the war, though, Archidamus did not lead this campaign. That's because the older, Eurypontid king of Sparta died at some point in 427 BC, after a 49-year rule, so he was probably not well enough to lead the campaign at that point. He would be succeeded by his eldest son, Aegis II, whose reign from 427 to 401 BC would span the rest of the Peloponnesian War, so he's a name to remember moving forward. But at the time of the Attic campaign of 427 BC, Archidamus was still alive, and so Aegis had not yet officially been given full regal authority. It's possible that Aegis on such short notice may have been judged too inexperienced for the task. Regardless, command of the campaign was given to Cleomenes, a brother of the exiled Agiad king Pleistonax. And so with Cleomenes at the helm, the Peloponnesians advanced once again into Attica. However, this time they were not content with just laying waste the same places as before. Instead, they cut down everything that had been passed by on previous attacks, and everything they came across that had been ravaged before, but that had grown up since, so that this invasion was more severely felt by the Athenians. Except possibly for the one in the second year, when the Peloponnesians strategically chose to attack the land of Acarnia. At the same time, either 40 or 42 ships were sent from Sparta to Mytilene under the command of the Spartan navarch Alcides probably with the hope that the Athenians would be too preoccupied with the invasion of their own land that they wouldn't be able to intercept them. And so, their success depended not on fighting at sea, but on evasion and speed. But Thucydides said that Alcides did not sail with a sense of urgency, and he wasted a great deal of time rounding the Peloponnese. Fortunately for them, though, they wouldn't encounter the Athenian fleet until Delos, but the delay proved to be huge. Once they reached the islands of Mykonos and then Icarus a few days later, they learned that Mytilene had already surrendered just seven days earlier, and their hopes of putting Athens under intense pressure came to nothing. Back at Mytilene, the Athenian blockade had depleted Mytilenian supplies of food at some point by the beginning of the summer, and since the Peloponnesian fleet had yet to arrive, Seleucus decided that the only hope of maintaining the revolt was to take on the Athenian hoplites in battle, and thus relieve the land blockade. But the Mytilenians didn't have near enough hoplites to win against the 1,000 of the Athenians. And so the oligarchs took the extraordinary step of giving out heavy arms to the lower classes, who had been used previously only as light-armed troops. However, this turned out to be a terrible mistake, because once they were armed, the starving people used their newfound advantage in their favor. They refused to obey the oligarchs and even threatened to make an agreement with the Athenians and surrender the city without their involvement, unless the oligarchs produced all the remaining food and doled it out to the people. Thucydides doesn't mention why the oligarchs didn't give in to their demands. It's probably because the stores of food were so low that a general distribution was impossible. And so, realizing no doubt how fatal it would be for them if one side surrendered and they weren't a part of the negotiations, at this point the oligarchs came to terms with the Athenian general Pacchus. The terms imposed on them amounted to unconditional surrender. The Mytilenians had to admit the troops of the Athenian army into the city with the understanding that they could send an embassy to Athens to plead their case. And until the return of this embassy, no Mytilenian citizen was to be imprisoned, enslaved, or killed by Pacchus. Despite these assurances, some Mytilenians were so completely overcome by terror that when the Athenian army entered the city, they fled to the altars of the gods for sanctuary suppliants. It would have been a sacrilegious act to harm someone who had taken refuge at an altar. Pacchus, though, assured them that he meant no harm, and so he removed them to the nearby island of Tenedos for safekeeping until the Athenians determined their future. Meanwhile, the Peloponnesians, after learning that Mytilene had already surrendered just seven days earlier, sailed to Erythrae on the Ionian coast, opposite the island of Chios. On the way, the Spartans captured an unstated amount of Chian prisoners, since they sailed up to their vessels freely, thinking that they were Athenian ships. The Chians did this because they had no anticipation of Peloponnesian ships venturing this far eastward Ionia, while the Athenians commanded the sea. Once the Peloponnesian fleet arrived at Erythrae, Alcides called a council with all of his fellow commanders to formulate their next course of action. A bold and daring Elian commander named Tutiopolis proposed an immediate attack on Mytilene, 
which would no doubt take the Athenians by surprise so soon after their victory. But the cautious and timid Alcidas acted with typical Spartan hesitance, especially when it came to the sea, and so he rejected the idea outright. Some Ionian and lesbian exiles also tried to urge the Spartans to move on from Mytilene, and instead to use their fleet in support of rebellions from other Ionian cities. Their plan centered on the Peloponnesian fleet seizing one of the cities on the Ionian coast, or the Aeolic city of Chime, which sat southeast of Lesbos, and to use it as a base for a general rebellion, which might encourage the Persian satrap Pisthunes to support them, as he did the Samians over a decade ago. Thucydides makes it known that he believed that this idea had merit, because if the uprising succeeded, the Athenians would lose their chief source of income at a time when they were especially vulnerable financially. And even if it failed, it would compel the Athenians to divide up their forces in order to deal with the rebellion and would still put strain on their treasury. But Alcidas rejected this plan as well, because his chief concern now that Mytilene had surrendered was getting back to the Peloponnese as quickly as possible, not wanting to get caught by the much faster Athenian fleet. So much to the chagrin of many of his fellow commanders and the lesbian and Ionian exiles, once the meeting concluded, he immediately led the fleet out from Erythrae to sail back home. First, they proceeded south along the shore. Then they stopped a short while later near Teos, still on the Ionian coast, as Alcidas was concerned that the Chian prisoners that he had taken would slow his escape. And so he began to put most of them to death. When he anchored next to Ephesus, he was warned by friendly Samian envoys that his behavior in massacring men who had never raised a hand against him and who were not his enemies, but were allies of Athens, only against their will, was in no way lockstep with the Spartans' call to be freeing the Greeks and would alienate those who were already partial to Sparta, saying that he would turn many more friends into enemies than enemies into friends. Alcidas thus yielded and freed the remaining prisoners who were still alive, but Sparta's reputation amongst many Ionian Greeks was badly tarnished because of this incident. Despite the fact that the Spartans were not quite ready to engage in decisive naval action, this marked the first time that a Spartan fleet had sailed into the eastern Aegean, and so their presence could be used as a lightning rod for Athens' allies, so long as their actions could clearly be distinguishable from the Athenians. And at this point, they weren't. Anyways, Alcidas then hastily sailed the fleet back to the Peloponnese, continuing southwards down the Ionian coast but he was spotted by the Athenian messenger ships Paralis and Salminia while at anchor near Claros. These two ships, which happened to be sailing from Athens, were special Athenian triremes used on sacred embassies and official business. Alcidas was very fearful, and so he quickly sailed westwards across the open Aegean Sea, and for the rest of the journey home, he did not anchor anywhere. When Pacchus learned of the Peloponnesian fleet's location, he feared that their ships would coast along the Ionian shore and plunder the Ionian cities, as they were no longer fortified. The reason why they were no longer fortified is unclear, though. Some scholars hold that the Ionian cities had been obliged by Athens to pull down their walls for the sake of imperial security, as all those who had rebelled were forced to, while others think that the measure was required by the terms of the Peace of Callias, a treaty either official or unofficial, between the Athenians and the Persians that we discussed in episode 42. Regardless, Pockets took an unspecified number of ships and pursued after the Peloponnesian fleet as far as Patmos to the southwest of Samos. By the time they got there, though, the Peloponnesians were long gone across the Aegean, and so they gave up chase. On the way back to Lesbos, Pockets stopped at Notium, the port of Colophon, where the Colophonians had settled after the capture of their upper city by a man named Idomenes and the Persians a few years earlier in 430 BC. Besides this, Idomenes is otherwise unknown, nor is it known whether he was acting under the order of Pisthunes, the Persian satrap at Sardis. Anyways, the Colophonian refugees at Nodium had immediately factionalized. One of these factions had hired Arcadian and Persian mercenaries to drive out the other faction, and they formed a new community with the Persians who had controlled the upper city. With word that the Athenian general Pacchus was in the area, the exiled Colophonians thus called on him for help. So Pacchus invited Hippias, who was the commander of the Arcadian mercenaries, to a parley to discuss terms. And he promised Hippias that if no deal was made, he would be allowed to go back into the fortified Nodium. 
But Pacus acted dishonorably, and this was just a ruse, because as soon as Hippias arrived, he was placed in custody, and the Athenians by surprise stormed the fortifications of Nodium. After all of the Arcadian and Persian mercenaries were summarily killed, Hippias was taken back into Nodium, where he too was executed. Pacchus then handed Nodium over to the Colophonian faction that had not sided with the Persians. Settlers were afterwards sent out from Athens to help repopulate the city, and the place was colonized according to Athenian laws. Afterwards, Pacchus sailed back to Mytilene and reduced the three remaining rebellious cities there, taking whatever military measures were necessary to secure the island. In one of the cities, he was able to capture the Spartan commander Saluthus. Pacchus then sent him off to Athens, along with 1,000 pro-Spartan Mytilenians who he suspected had been the most involved in organizing the revolt, which concluded those that had been held under custody in Tenedos. These men were escorted back to Athens by the greater part of his army, while the rest stayed behind to settle in Mytilene and throughout the island of Lesbos as he thought best. Anecdotally, we have found a spear butt at Athens with traces of letters saying Apo Lesbian Dioscoroi, meaning that it was taken away from the lesbians and dedicated to the Dioscoroi, most assuredly during this revolt. Thucydides' account of the Mytilenian revolt is considerably longer than his account of any other revolt from the Athenian Empire. It seems that the purpose for this was to set the scene for the main event, the discussion of Mytilene's fate in the Athenian Ecclesia. Thucydides doesn't report the details of any speeches made, but he summarizes enough of what was said so that we can reconstruct what happened. In the wake of Mytilene's surrender, a heated debate took place in the Athenian Ecclesia over their fate. To better understand the mood of the Athenians at that point, we need to understand the situation in which they found themselves. It was the fourth year of a war that they didn't expect to last this long. They had suffered from invasions and plague. Their original strategy had failed, and the architect of that strategy was now dead. The rebellion of Mytilene, which was one of their largest and most powerful allies, plus the penetration of a Spartan fleet for the first time in the eastern Aegean, must have been terrifying for the Athenians. And so, the men who sat on the Peninx would have been dominated by fear for their survival and angry at those who put it at risk. With this in mind, they swiftly and no doubt emotionally voted to put Seleuthus to death without a trial, even though he offered to persuade the Spartans to abandon the still ongoing siege of Plataea in exchange for his life. They then turned their attention to the question of what to do with the prisoners at Athens and the rest of the Mytilenians back on Lesbos. The embassy from Mytilene, including both oligarchs and democrats, probably spoke first and naturally they weren't in agreement over who was accountable for the rebellion. The oligarchs argued that all Mytilenians were to blame, trusting that the Athenians would not choose to destroy a whole people, while the Democrats claimed that the oligarchs alone were responsible and had forced the common people to join them. Cleon then put forward a motion that all Mytilenian men should be executed and all women and children should be enslaved. His chief opponent in this was a man named Diodotus, a man who was mostly unknown. Diodotus' father, Eucrates, is presumed to have been the fairly prominent lieutenant of Pericles, and so he would have been a part of Pericles' faction. He represented the moderate side of the debate, and argued for caution, and not to be led by emotion. Cleon, though, was able to manipulate the people's anger, and he convinced the Athenians to vote for his motion, which was the harshest punishment to date for a revolting ally. The citizens were particularly enraged the revolt had brought a Spartan fleet in Ionian waters, where it would never have passed in normal circumstances and where no enemy fleet had sailed in over 20 years. And so a trireme was sent off that very day to deliver the orders to Pacchus. But some of the Athenians, who had made their decision out of anger, began to have a change of heart. Thucydides writes, quote, On the next day, they were immediately filled with repentance and reckoned that the decision that they had taken was savage and unprecedented, to destroy a whole city instead of those who were guilty. End quote. The ambassadors from Mytilene and their Athenian supporters, which probably included the current ten strategoi, were able to take advantage of this shift in attitude and asked the Pratanes of the Boule to call a second extraordinary meeting of the Ecclesia to be held so that the punishment of the Mytilenians could be discussed again. What followed was one of the most famous debates in the history of the Athenian democracy, and one of only two occasions in which Thucydides records the content, and perhaps some of the actual words, of the opposing speeches in the Ecclesia. 
As such, the debate has been the subject of much scholarly analysis, aimed at elucidating both the circumstances of the revolt and the internal politics of Athens at the time, which highlights some of the perceived merits of both oligarchy and democracy. Thucydides tells us that various opinions were expressed, both for and against the original decision. Though he does not include them, it is almost certain that there were numerous other speeches making arguments that centered on humanity, pity, and mercy. Instead, Thucydides only provides two speeches for this second debate, as he condenses the whole debate down to two basic opposing points of view. Whether the best way to control the subjects of the empire was through fear, as told by Cleon, or through moderation, which was espoused by Diodotus. Despite the fact that he appears elsewhere on the historical record, and we can surmise that he is lurking in the background, stirring up the demos and leading the aggressive war faction, this is actually the first time in Thucydides where we are formally introduced to Cleon, who he calls the most violent of the citizens, and at that time by far the most influential with the people. In the speech, he shows the cocky, self-assurance that is typical of Thucydides' portrayal of him. In a dismissive way, and chastising the Athenian people for their ambivalence over Mytilene, he begins, quote, I, for my part, have often noticed before that democracies cannot rule over others, but I see it as especially now in these regrets of yours about Mytilene, end quote. In arguing for the original decision to execute the Mytilenians, he derides the Athenians for their openness and flexibility, and advocates a policy of harsh consistency in the enforcement of laws, as the only way to maintain order, even when they seem unjust, insisting that bad laws that stay the same are better than good ones that change. The speech is filled with criticism of the Athenian people and of certain elements of imperialistic democratic ideology. He maintains that anyone who would speak on behalf of the Mytilenian people must have been bribed, and he also implied that the Athenians have become jaded by sophist oratory and questioned the worth of free speech by criticizing the Athenians for permitting clever points of debate to distract from obvious facts. He describes the Athenians as, quote, victims of their own pleasure in listening, and are more like an audience sitting at the feet of a professional lecturer than a parliament discussing matters of state. End quote. His distaste for intellectualism contrasts pointedly with the praise of deliberation and debate that we saw in Pericles' funeral oration. He says that ordinary people, quote, run their cities far better than intelligent ones, for these want to seem wiser than the laws, and to top whatever nonsense is said in public assemblies. They are the downfall of cities because of this sort of thing. End quote. Despite all of his crassness, Cleon does follow Pericles in some respects. When he expresses the true nature of the empire and why it needs to be ruled with an iron fist, quote, You don't understand that the empire you possess is a tyranny, exercised over those who plot against you and who are ruled against their will. End quote. It is clear that Cleon, with his speech, is deliberately laying claim to aspects of Pericles' mantle of leadership among the people. He then goes on to speak about why the Mytilenians were to blame, and thus why they should be punished harshly. He stresses that Mytilene has harmed them more than any other city, and to talk about revolt is a misnomer, since people only revolt when they have been mistreated, and the Mytilenians had all the advantages of an independent city, and were treated with the greatest honor. Instead, Cleon argues that they are the aggressors, who sided with Athens' bitter enemies, bent on their destruction. He insists that the Mytilenian people as a whole, not merely the oligarchs, had revolted against Athens, and thus both deserve to be condemned as guilty. He also admonishes the fact that any of the subject allies retained a special status. Quote, We should never have treated the Mytilenians differently from the others, and then they would not have reached this point of insolence. In general, it is the nature of man to despise flattery and admire firmness. End quote. Furthermore, the Athenians should consider the effect of leniency on their other allies. Quote, if you impose the same punishment both on those who have been forced to revolt by your enemies and on those who have willingly revolted, who do you think will not revolt on the slightest pretext when there is freedom if successful, but nothing serious if they fail? End quote. If the Athenians continued their policy of softness, misplaced pity, and clemency, quote, we shall risk our lives and money against each rebellious state. If we succeed, we will recover a state that has been destroyed, only then to be deprived for the future of its revenue, which is the source of our strength. 
If we fail, we will add new enemies to those we have already. In the time we should devote to fighting our present enemies, we will spend combating our own allies. End quote. Essentially, Cleon is amounting a full-scale attack on the imperial policy of Pericles and his moderate faction. Instead, he opts for a policy of terror to deter rebellions. And so, he finally comes to the crux of his argument. Quote, Punish these men as they deserve, and give a clear example to the other allies that whoever revolts will be punished with death. For if they know this, you will give more time to fighting your enemies than making war on your allies. End quote. In Cleon's estimation, the Athenian Empire was hated by its subject allies, and so the only secure way to maintain the empire was to instill fear, and the death penalty for those who revolt would be the most effective way of doing that. He finishes his speech by urging the people to not be traitors to their own selves. Then we have a speech by Diodotus. He spoke in defense of his previous opposition to the original plan of mass executions and enslavement, making a marvelous argument grounded in human psychology. The early portion of Diodotus' speech is devoted to refuting the charges that Cleon had preemptively leveled against those who would speak after him, principally by arguing that the ecclesia would deprive itself of wise counsel if it constantly examined the motives of speakers instead of the arguments they presented. He states that haste and emotion are the two greatest obstacles to wise counsel. What is needed here is calm deliberation, and he declares that orators deserve respect and should be heeded. Diodotus argues that the issue was not a question of Mytilene's guilt, and whether Athens should seek vengeance. Rather, it was a question of what is in Athens' best interest. Because Cleon had implied that a rejection of his penalty in favor of a gentler one would be a sign of weakness, Diodotus shrewdly urges the Athenians to vote for his own proposal, not out of clemency, but out of expediency, or what is most useful to Athens. And throughout the speech, Diodotus refuses to stray from the grounds of expediency, reminding the Athenians that they sit not as a court of law, but as a political assembly, dedicated to determining what action is most advantageous for Athens. Though he genuinely desired a milder punishment for Mytilene, his deeper purpose was to defend a continuation of a moderate imperial policy, and so he was not against the death penalty per se, and would support it if it was in Athens' best interest, but he strongly believed that Cleon's solution here would not be the most useful for the Athenians when they had to deal with revolts in the future, which he argues, because of human nature, would happen no matter how harsh the punishment. His most effective counter to Cleon's argument, though, centered on the double loss of income for Athens. Because when a subject ally revolted, and they were all executed, it would cost the Athenians how much they expended to put down the revolt, plus what they would lose on future tribute from the ally which they just eradicated. He next attacks Cleon's claim that harshness would deter future revolts, by saying that deterrence is not as effective as one might believe. Because people who undertake risky ventures, such as revolting, do so in the expectation that they will succeed, not fail. He argues that if Cleon's methods were to be adopted, then every city that revolts, knowing the outcome if they failed would be death, would fight to the bitter end and not come to terms, which would cost the Athenians even more money. And there was no merit in killing those even when they had surrendered, for to do so removed any incentive for surrender in future rebellions. And so, the more useful countermeasure is a mild punishment that will allow for reconciliation when the revolt appears likely to fail. On the issue of culpability, though, he flatly denies that the Demos shares in the guilt of the oligarchs and warns the assembly against alienating its potential friends throughout the empire. He finishes by asking the Athenians to fundamentally question what is right and just and to look towards moderation rather than aggressive punishment. Instead, he urges the Athenians to spare the Mytilenians in an effort to create an alliance. Diodotus then gives his view of the empire that is directly opposite of Cleon's opinion that it is a tyranny. Quote, At the moment in all of the cities, the people are your friends. Either they do not join the few, meaning the oligarchs, in revolting, or if they are forced to revolt, they become at once the enemy of those who have revolted. And when you go to war with a hostile city, you have the people, who are the majority, on your side. End quote. He stresses that indiscriminate punishment of all, as proposed by Cleon, would in the future drive the people into the arms of the oligarchs. 
Although some might debate the accuracy of Diodotus's contention here, it certainly makes us think twice about Thucydides' earlier claim, in Pericles' final speech, that the Athenian Empire was universally detested in the subject cities. Diodotus concludes his argument then with a plea for calm consideration, by proposing that those suspected of stirring up the revolt should be tried in Athens, and if found guilty, they should be the ones executed, whereas the rest of the people should keep their lives and live in Mytilene as allies of the Athenians. By a narrow majority, Diodotus' rational argument won the day, and the Athenians voted by a show of hands to spare Mytilene. A second trireme thus was dragged from its shed and sent out immediately to reach Mytilene, about 185 miles away, before the previous ship, in order to stop Pacchus from carrying out the executions. Envoys from Mytilene provided extra rations of wine and barley cakes needed with olive oil for the rowers and promised a large reward if they arrived in time. And so the sailors set off at a torrent pace and refused even to make the usual stops for eating and sleeping. So rowing day and night, sleeping in shifts, and eating at their oars, the rowers of the second trireme managed to make up the first ship's one-day lead. As it happened, they didn't face any contrary wind, and the first ship had sailed along lackadaisically as it had not been in a hurry to deliver the harsh orders. Still though, the first ship had just beaten them to Mytilene, so that as they approached the city, the lookouts on the second ship could see the first ship already in the harbor. Thucydides dramatically says, quote, Pacchus had just read out the decree and was about to carry out its orders when the second ship put in and prevented the destruction. By so little did Mytilene escape its danger, end quote. Basically, the second ship arrived just as the death sentence was being announced and the people of Mytilene were saved. This mercy only applied to the innocent, though, because despite his defeat, Cleon was not deterred, and that very same day he put forward a second motion which proposed the death penalty for those who had been suspected of being guilty. His motion passed and so all 1,000 of those who had been suspected of leading the coup and who were sent to Athens by Pacchus were put to death immediately without a proper trial, either individually or in mass. The ecclesia simply assumed they were guilty based on Pacchus' opinions, and there is no evidence to suggest that the majority of Athenians weren't in agreement. Also, 1,000 was not an insignificant number, as scholars believe that Mytilene had about 10,000 citizens at this point, so that about one-tenth of their entire adult male population was just executed. Although the other nine-tenths or so of the Mytilenean citizens were spared execution, a harsh punishment was still imposed on them. The Athenians voted to destroy the walls of Mytilene, to seize all of their ships, and to take possession of all the towns that Mytilene had controlled, both on Lesbos and the Ionian mainland. Finally, instead of imposing phoros or tribute, they divided all of the land of Lesbos, except that of loyal Methymna, into 3,000 lots. 300 were put aside as sacred to the gods, and the remaining 2,700 were distributed by lot to Athenian clerics, who would be sent to the island to colonize it. However, the people of Lesbos agreed to rent these allotments, paying the Athenian allotment holders two minai per year, which is equal to 200 drachmas and cultivated the land themselves. In addition, ten talents were now to be collected from them annually for the Athenian treasury. For the Athenians, this solution solved several problems. The garrison would provide security on Lesbos, and the absence of its members from Athens would, to an extent, ease the overpopulation of that city and the strain on the treasury resulting from the need to feed thousands of displaced farmers. At this point, Chios remained the only independent ship supplying state in the empire. Also, in an anecdote that some have connected with the Mytilene affair, Plutarch in his Life of Nicias reports that Pacchus killed himself during a trial at some point after his command at Mytilene. Some scholars have interpreted this anecdote to indicate that Pacchus, a moderate, was being prosecuted by Cleon or another more aggressive politician, who disapproved of his decision to break off the pursuit of Alcidas' fleet. Regardless, he was brought to trial for his conduct as general, and being beleaguered by his prosecution, he pulled out his sword and killed himself in court. The Athenian response to the Mytilenean revolt reflected the newer, aggressive spirit that began to challenge the older, moderate approach by Pericles and his associates. The elections for Strategos of 427 BC brought to power new generals who soon would introduce even bolder policies. In the wake of this, even the moderates felt the need to take the offensive, even if it was cautiously, 
And so in the next episode, we will start to see the departure from Pericles' defensive-based strategy to a more ambitious, offensive one, aiming to win the war decisively by campaigning more widely and aggressively against the Spartans and their allies, rather than waiting for the gradual evolution of a stalemate by sticking rigidly to Periclean strategy. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 94, New Leaders and New Strategies. Thank you.